Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Original Goldsmith, one process. Hmm. What are you going to say, Mommy? What, dear? What are you going to say when you meet my mother? Oh, uh... Bonus dies, Madry. <laughs> There's this one episode of I Love Lucy where Ricky Ricardo brings Lucy home to Cuba to meet his family for the first time. On the plane to Havana, he coaches her on some basic Spanish phrases. Buenos dias, madre. I don't think that's very nice, making fun of my Spanish. Well, you've been making fun of my English for 15 years. Well, that's different. Spanish is a foreign language. Well, English is a foreign language to me. Well, the way you speak it, it is to me, too. Ricky and Lucy came from opposite worlds. They spoke different languages, quite literally. The show mined these differences for laughs, especially Ricky's accent. The real-life Ricky Ricardo was, of course, one Desiderio Alberto Arnez Ideacha III, better known to us as Desi Arnez. Desi had a few things in common with his TV alter ego. They were both Cuban, both band leaders, and both trying to make it in America alongside a sparky redhead named Lucy. But the real story of Desi's life before Lucy, that wouldn't have made it past the censors back then. There was violence, gangsters, sex, and like any good sitcom, a few hilarious misunderstandings. I'm Ben Mankiewicz, And this is Season 3 of The Plot Thickens, a podcast from Turner Classic Movies. This season, we're telling the story of how Lucille Ball became the funniest, most recognizable woman in America. When she was 28, Lucy met Desi Arnaz at the RKO studio in Hollywood. He would become the most important man of her life. This is the story of how Desi found his way to that studio in Hollywood, and to Lucy. Their partnership would change both of them, and show business forever. This is episode four, Desi. Our story begins in Cuba. As I came into the beautiful harbor of Havana, specifically Santiago de Cuba, where Desi Arnaz was born March 2nd, 1917. 
The family he was born into was kind of a big deal. One of Desi's grandfathers was a doctor who traveled with Teddy Roosevelt's Rough Riders. The Cubans, by popular subscription, erected a beautiful statue to Theodore Roosevelt as a token of their undying gratitude. Another was a VP at Bacardi Rum. During Prohibition, Americans flocked to Cuba to drink daiquiris at the source. But many travelers are far more interested in this, the entrance to the famous Bacardi distillery. Cuba in the 1930s was a playground for tourists and for young Desi Arnaz. By the time he was in high school, Desi had it all. Looks, girls, money, and connections. His dad was the mayor of Desi's hometown, a rising star in the regime of President Gerardo Machado. And they were wealthy. They owned a few ranches in the countryside, a home in the city, and a summer house on a small island. And some of the Arnez men had yet another kind of house, a place just to keep their mistresses. It was not unusual for a married man of the upper classes to have an official family and an unofficial family, to have an official wife and to have an unofficial mistress. That's Gustavo Perez Firmat. He's a Cuban-American and a literature professor. He's written a lot about Desi. The unofficial family, that family was called La Casa Chica, the small house. The official family lived in the big house. In Spanish, we call them queridas, loved one. And it's strange that your wife is not your querida. Desi's grandfather had seven children with his wife. His mistress raised at least seven more. Desi, though, was an only child. He was named after his father, Desiderio, from the Latin word for desire. When Desi turned 15, his uncle took him out to celebrate. For Cuban boys of a certain class, and maybe of any class, it was a kind of rite of passage to be taken to a brothel for him to lose his virginity when he was 14, 15, 16. And in Desi's case, it was his uncle who took him to a fancy brothel in Santiago de Cuba called Casa Marina. Desi began frequenting brothels when he was 15, and he never stopped. At Casa Marina, Desi says he learned the whole deal. Skills he would later use to seduce some of the most glamorous actresses in Hollywood. Desi's childhood was full of music and dancing and girls. Desi's three favorite things came together every year during the festival known as Carnival. In Havana, Carnival means excitement. That's when roving bands called comparsas would take over the streets. Comparsas are these sort of groups of street revelers that, you know, go down the street dancing and singing and playing instruments, playing drums, playing cowbells, playing, you know, frying pans, whatever they can get a hold of. They were loud and fun and sexy. Desi ate it up. Years later, when he was invited to be king of Carnival in Miami, he reminisced about it to a TV reporter. I was a kid. I never missed that. You know, three, four days a week, you know, everybody dancing and beautiful dolls and costumes. 
But when Desi was 16 years old, his entire life changed. That's because in 1933, Cuba was a powder keg waiting to go off. Havana, hotbed of Cuba's carnival of intrigue. It's 1933, and newly elected President Gerardo Machado has parlayed his control of the army and of public utilities into a mighty force that has suppressed unrest and revolt. But now it's... Machado was a dictator, and he became a very repressive dictator. And that created a lot of social unrest in Cuba. It was August 12th. 1933. As Desi remembered it, it was a muggy afternoon in Santiago, and school was out for the summer. He was at his friend Jack's place, playing penny-ante poker. He told the story in his memoir, which he titled simply, A Book. The excerpts you'll hear are from the audiobook, and they're read by an actor. During the card game, Desi had a strange premonition. He said to Jack, I don't know why, but I feel I should go home. What do you mean? You should go home. Just because you're winning, eh? I said, I'll be back in a little while. As I got home, the phone was ringing. It was my mother's brother, Eduardo. He sounded very excited. His uncle told him to get his mother and get out of the house right away. They're coming after you. Who's coming after us? I asked. Machado has fled the country and anyone who belonged to the Machado regime is in danger. All Machadistas are being arrested or killed. Their houses are being ransacked and burned. The powder keg had just exploded. And in August 1933, the revolution is on. Riots break out in the streets. Machado's police hurl their horses into the mobs to no avail. Irate Cubans, roused to fighting fury, rush to destroy Machado-owned property. When Desi hung up the phone, he heard a rumbling sound. I looked out and I could not believe what I saw. About eight blocks away, just beginning to come over the top of the hill on our main boulevard, there was a mob of 500 people or more carrying torches, pitchforks, guns, and God knows what else. He helped his mother into her coat, grabbed some cash and a gun. They managed to escape just before the crowd set fire to their home. Desi's father, meanwhile, was 500 miles away in the capital. Here are the actual scenes of mobs running wild in Havana, celebrating Machado's downfall. As rioting crowds surged through the streets, shouting for the blood of Machado and his henchmen. Old newsreel footage shows rebels hurling pianos from second-floor balconies and burning piles of furniture in the streets. Machado had already slipped out of the country with sacks full of gold. But Desi's father wasn't so lucky. He was in jail six months. All the congressmen in jail, all the senators, all the mayors, all the governors, everybody was in the camp. The Arnez family lost everything. Desi would later describe driving past the wreckage of his house in Santiago. He saw the family car flipped upside down on the sidewalk, heirlooms lying broken in the yard. The last thing he saw was his guitar, smashed and still smoldering.
Let's look at Florida, that most southern projection of the USA, which has been variously known as the Peninsula State, the Sunshine State, and even the Mermaid State. Desi Arnaz stepped off the ferry in Key West in June of 1934. He was roughly 5 feet 10 inches tall, a lanky teenager. But he had the broad shoulders of a man. He wore his jet black hair slicked back and swept over to the side. A stray lock often fell down his forehead, especially when he danced. He had dark eyes and an easy smile. Like so many others, Desi was looking for a fresh start in America. His timing, though, couldn't have been worse. The United States was in the middle of a depression. These were not prosperous economic times, and so you have these people who come here, and then you have to figure out a way to make a living. Desi's father greeted the boat. After six months in prison, he'd gone into exile in Florida. The plan was for Desi's mother to stay on the island until the Arnaz men could set up the family in Miami. But it was an uphill climb. You know, I couldn't speak English, so I was going around, you know, see if I could find a restaurant. So it's, uh, it's habla español, you know. I think it must have been difficult for both of them. Desi's father, who was an educated man who had been an important politician in Cuba, had to make a living selling tiles. They lived in the warehouse where the tiles were kept. And at night, they had to swat away the rats. So it had to be a struggle at the beginning. Desi enrolled at St. Patrick's High School in Miami Beach. That's where he met his first American best friend, Al Capone Jr., the son of America's most famous gangster. To make ends meet, Desi got a job cleaning bird cages, And in the winter of 1936, he landed his first showbiz gig, singing and playing guitar for a rumba band. They were hired to play between sets of the Buddy Rogers Orchestra. Desi said when they broke into a Latin beat, the crowd cleared the dance floor. Americans hadn't learned how to rumba in those days. It was there that Desi caught the eye of a band leader called Xavier Cugat, the king of the rumba himself. Cugat was a little eccentric. He had a thing for miniature chihuahuas and often performed while holding a tiny dog in one hand and his conductor's baton in the other even taught one of his dogs to play the piano. But Cugat was a bona fide star. He had songs on the hit parade and a gig leading the house band at the new Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York. He needed a singer for his orchestra, and he invited Desi to audition. My Cuban blood was flowing, my hips were revolving, my feet were kicking, my arms were waving. He would have made Elvis Presley look as if he were standing still. I sang the shit out of that song. I was so goddamn excited, I hardly heard Kugat say, Say, son, you got the job. When can you come to New York? It was an opportunity that would turn young Desiderio Alberto from Santiago de Cuba into Desi Arnaz, one of the most influential Latin American entertainers in the country. Desi promised Kugat he would see him in New York just as soon as he finished high school. The 
Plot Thickens will return in just a moment. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance, an emergency repair, or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. A couple of weeks after Desi graduated from St. Patrick's High, he got on a bus bound for New York City. Cougat had sent him a one-way ticket and promised to pay him for just two weeks of work, a tryout, he called it. Desi's father thought he was crazy to go. When Desi got off the bus in Times Square, he had 15 bucks in his pocket and no idea if this gamble would pay off. Desi got himself a hotel room for a dollar a night, then went straight to the Waldorf. He took the elevator all the way up to the 18th floor to the Starlight Roof Supper Club. He had just a few days to rehearse with Kugat's orchestra before the show went on the road. During those rehearsals, Desi quickly found a pal. They were actually better friends than I even knew. That's Mike Nicoletti. His dad was Nick Nicoletti. He was Kugat's assistant. It was Nick's job to take Kugat's chihuahuas out for their walk every day. Nick and Desi would become close over the years. At lunch, they'd all sit around playing cards, you know, drinking alcohol. These long, luxurious lunches where they were just kind of like party. Once the tour started, the orchestra played the Arrowhead Inn. It was a casino in upstate New York that was popular with people with last names like Vanderbilt. One night, Bing Crosby was there. Crosby was one of the biggest musical stars of the time. He invited Desi over to his table. Desi told Bing Crosby that Cougat was only paying him $30 a week. That cheap crook, Crosby said. And he marched over to Cougat and demanded he give Desi a raise, which Cougat did to $35 a week. To live on $35 a week in New York, even in those days, was very difficult. Today, of course, it's impossible. Having to go through the Waldorf kitchen to get to the bandstand helped. I lifted all the celery, olives, carrots, pieces of bread, buns and butter, and whatever else I could stash into my Roomba shirt every time we came back through the kitchen for our 10-minute rest. Those wide, full sleeves with all the big ruffles were very useful. Desi watched Kugat and learned the business of being a band leader. After six months, Desi told Kugat he wanted out. He wanted to start his own band. He told the story to Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show in 1976. I quit Cougar because, like I says, I couldn't uh, eat well no. working with him. <laughs> and uh, I said, Cougar, I got to quit. I got to get my little band. And he says, you'll die of hunger. Nobody knows the rumba in this country. I says, I'm dying of hunger now. So what's the difference? <laughs> so he says, go to Miami. And uh, I go to Miami. I said, if I get a job, would you send me a little band? I said, sure. So... He said, you can use Xavier Cougat as his Desi Arnaz Orchestra from the world of a story in New York City. I said, gee, that's great, you know, it's a wonderful start. 
When Desi left New York to strike out on his own, he took his friend Nick Nicoletti with him. Nick had a talent for persuasion that would come in handy in Miami. That period in Miami, that seems like kind of a fairy tale type time in their relationship and my dad's existence. He worked out this one deal with him and he said, yeah, I just let Nick do it because he's a better bullshitter than I am or something like that. <laughs> Desi hired Nick to manage his new band, Desi Arnaz and his Xavier Cougat Orchestra. Nick and Desi heard about a new club opening in Miami Beach and thought they'd try to get the orchestra booked there. They walked in one night and acted like big shots. They left huge tips for the cigarette girls and pretended to know about expensive champagne. In the end, they BS'd their way into a regular gig. And the paycheck? $650 a week. Desi wasn't even 21 years old yet, but he was already becoming a shrewd businessman, the kind of guy who in Cuba might be called un vivo. Here's Gustavo Perez again. Vivo literally means alive, but un vivo is kind of a rogue, a guy who gets away with something, a guy who knows all the angles. And throughout the whole book, he delights in explaining how he got the better of all these American bigwigs. So this is like this Cuban who's showing you that he's actually smarter than all these American types, even though he had no education, he knew nothing about finances, and even his musical career, because he had little or no musical training, and yet he got away with it. Just before the band's big debut, Cougat sent down some musicians from New York to act as Desi's Latin orchestra, but the drummer, couldn't even play a rumba beat. Desi told the story on The Tonight Show. Now the drummer was a Spaniard. Now you know the Spaniards, they all pass a double. No matter what they play, it sounds like they're playing something for the bull to come out into the arena, And a violin player, a saxophone player, and a bass player. There's the two Italians and another Jewish fellow. No Cubans in the whole thing? <laughs> nothing. No maracas, no conga, no drums, no nothing. The first set was a total disaster. I came down the stairs, the guy says, you're fired. <laughs> just, that is the worst sound I have ever heard in my life. <laughs> and he was right. Yeah, he was right. He says, I would have been better off hiring the Salvation Army. <laughs> anyway, I said to these guys, I bought a bottle of rum. I says, drink up. We're going to play something new. <laughs> the band was scheduled to play for a packed New Year's Eve crowd. That's when Desi came up with what he calls his dance of desperation. He was um, fronting a little band, and it was bombing, and the musician didn't know how to play Cuban music. And so he remembered these carnival celebrations Desi thought back to those festivals where Cubans paraded through the streets banging pots and pans or whatever they could find. It never failed to put people in a party mood, and you didn't have to be a virtuoso to pull it off. So Desi strapped on a conga drum and gave the band a quick lesson on the beat. To the drummer, I says, you can go boom, 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 can you? You don't have to make that sound like a password. I says, no, boom, 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 I can go. I says, all right. Now the violin player... I went to the kitchen, got two frying pans, gave him the frying pans. He says, how do I go boom, boom, boom with this things? I said, you don't go boom, boom, boom with those. You go ding, 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 ding. He said, ding, 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 ding. 
Now, this is a guy that probably was hoping to be Joshua Heifetz, and he's just... Sitting there with two frying pans. Sitting there with two frying pans and two spoons. <laughs> That's how the conga started. My dance of desperation. Nick Nicoletti was in the audience and told the crowd to form a line behind him. One, two, three, kick. Desi climbed on top of the bar and beat the drum until the whole crowd was out of their seats, snaking through the club. Desi claims it was the first time the conga had ever been done in the United States. That's an exaggeration, but Desi deserves credit for making the conga line a staple of every American wedding reception for the last 80 years. Back in the days of the conga craze, there were many, many conga songs with funny titles, like the conga from Honga or um, Boogie Woogie Conga. But the best conga title is I Came, I Saw, I conga It." And I think that's sort of a description of what Desi did. He came, he saw, he conga, and he sort of conga his way into fame and fortune. Within a year, conga fever had gripped the country. In New York, a new club called La Conga was set to open near Swing Street, the heart of Manhattan nightlife. The owner offered Desi a regular gig. La Conga was the place to be seen that summer, especially for New York society girls. They were big fans of this Cuban newcomer. Gossip columnist Walter Winchell wrote that La Conga is where the debutantes go from prim to primitive. Another regular at La Conga was a woman named Polly Adler. Polly Adler was the most famous madam in America in the Jazz Age between World War I and the end of World War II. That's Debbie Applegate, Adler's biographer. She was a very tiny woman with a big, booming voice. And she was very funny. She had a Yiddish, uh, Brooklynish accent uh, and was known for her jokes. Uh, and her the madam even had her own catchphrase. It is always a, a uh, business doing pleasure with you. Adler was running a high-class bordello out of a townhouse in midtown Manhattan. Half of New York society hung out at Polly's, from the writer Dorothy Parker to mobsters like Lucky Luciano. By the early 1930s, there is not a nightclub in America that is not mob-connected. That's just a fact. She very quickly became one of the top madams for the Prohibition-era gangsters who were bringing bootleg booze into New York and starting the nightclubs and the speakeasies that would come to dominate New York nightlife. One of the ways that she would advertise is by taking her girls, or especially if she had a new suite of girls, take them out to the nightclubs where they would sort of parade in and grab everyone's eye. Polly started bringing her girls to La Conga. It was the hot new night spot. She would show them off to the clientele and to the band. It's a little basement club. It's very romantic feeling in the low lights with the palm trees and the murals of Cuba on the wall. And she has a couple of her girls there, including um, one of her new redheads. Uh, she always liked to keep a blonde, a brunette, and a redhead uh, on staff at any given moment. And if she didn't have a real redhead, somebody had to become a redhead. One night, Desi took an interest in one of Polly's redheads. In fact, the words he used to describe her were built like a brick shithouse. Always a gentleman. 
Polly invited Desi to join them for breakfast at her house after his last set. Without telling him that she's inviting him to a whorehouse, she invites him over for breakfast. It's deluxe. He's so impressed by the apartment. It was done up in shades of red and white with a grand crystal chandelier, lots of sort of 17th century French furniture and pictures of what they used to call barroom nudes uh, hung on the walls and little knickknacks. She had a movie projector and dirty films that she could pull out and show, but she tried to keep it classy. She had caviar, they have scrambled eggs, uh, plenty of high-end champagne. And as they're finishing their breakfast, uh, Polly says, so you like the redhead, huh? And he says, oh, yeah, I like the redhead. Uh, but by this point, you know, he's copped on. It's clear that this is a this is a brothel. Uh, and he, at that stage, has no money uh, to speak of. Uh, and so he's like, thanks, but no thanks. Can't afford uh, the pleasure. Uh, and Polly insists, no, 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 no. Uh, that's all right, Sonny. This one's on the house. Desi Arnaz had a sharp memory. He remembered everything about that first night at Polly's, the way a white silk gown draped over a woman's body, and how the parlor smelled like yellow roses. And he never forgot the redhead. Wow. I've had my share of delicious sex in my life, but that redhead was something else. If there was anything I had not learned at Casa Marina, she taught it to me then. She was insatiable. Desi quickly became a regular. He'd do two or three sets a night at La Conga, and when the 2.30 show was over, he'd go to Polly's to be entertained until 7 or 8 in the morning. Then he'd sleep all day and do it all again the next night. Desi was a young kid in a new city in a new country, suddenly getting a lot of attention for his good looks and that exotic accent. And Polly's was more than just a brothel. Applegate thinks it was a place where people like Desi could escape the pressure of the spotlight and feel at home. Polly's house was a place where you could let your hair down. You could just be free. It was a, a place where a lot of gay people came. It was a place where a lot of people who were eccentric came. And it was a place where men like Desi Arnaz could come and feel like you could just be yourself in a way that was almost impossible in other places. Desi didn't know it yet, but he was about to meet someone who would give him that same feeling. She grew up over a thousand miles away from the Cuban city where he was born, but she would make Desi feel like he was home. Desi's star was rising fast. At La Conga, he was palling around with movie stars and big-time musicians. Soon he was on the radar of New York's most important gossip columnist, Dorothy Kilgallen. Desi Arnaz is a black-eyed, slim-hipped, rhythm-conscious young Latin on the threshold of becoming a fad. He is perhaps the 1939 equivalent of Valentino. The guy who set the standard for Latin lovers was Rudolf Valentino. Again, Gustavo Perez. Who was Italian from New York. And so the stereotype was already there. The dancing Latin and the hot-tempered Latin are certainly stereotypes. At the time, Richard Rodgers and Lawrence Hart were the hottest writing team on Broadway. They were so famous, everyone just knew them as Rogers and Hart. 
they came to see Desi at La Conga. They were interested in casting him in their new Broadway show, a dance musical called Too Many Girls. They wanted Desi to play a skirt-chasing, singing-and-dancing ball player from Argentina named Manuelito. They'd written Manuelito a song with a title that'll make you cringe. Spick and Spanish. All dressed up, speak in Spanish, but I got no place to go. Got some things I got to show. The interesting thing is that, as far as I know, uh, Desi Arnaz never objected to these stereotypes. He went along with them. Why? It was profitable to go along with it. He was giving the audience what the audience wanted. Rogers and Hart wanted Desi, but he'd never acted or heard of Rogers and Hart or even seen a Broadway show. Desi got the part anyway. He was cast opposite Diosa Costello, a Puerto Rican singer and dancer who performed with him at La Conga. Desi was riding a lucky streak. But while the musical was in rehearsals in Boston, he worried his luck might have run out. It all started with a sore toe. He realized up in Boston that he had a sore toe and it was turning kind of purple. So he goes to the doctor. Uh, doctor is treating the toe, but then the doctor comes back with bad news. He hates to tell him this, but he has syphilis. You're listening to The Plot Thickens from Turner Classic Movies. We'll be back after this short break. In 1939, a syphilis diagnosis sounded like a death sentence. There was no penicillin back then. Al Capone, the father of Desi's high school buddy, had gotten the disease not long before, and it eventually killed him. And now, a doctor was telling Desi he had it, too. What he said to the doctor is, I don't see how that could be. The girls at Polly's house are really clean. So he's flipping out and not quite sure what to do. And then, at a certain point, the doctor comes and says, Oh, sorry, that was just a mistake. It turned out I'd gotten the blood vials mixed up when I took your blood. With some other guy. And Desi said it was like one of the best days of his life, the day he, he learned that he did not have syphilis. When Too Many Girls finally opened on Broadway, Desi's big moment came at the end of the first act, when his character led the cast in a massive conga line. Van Johnson was Desi's understudy. We get into rehearsals and we start learning the songs. And I've always been crazy about bongos and samba, mambo, or whatever. Da, 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 da. And it was just coming back into vogue. And when Desi did the first act finale with playing the bongos, blew the roof off the theater in New York. On opening night, after the finale, Desi sped over to La Conga to play a couple of sets. And then he and the crew stayed up waiting for the reviews to come in. The joint was packed. Everyone's wearing white tails and white tie. Desi finishes his last set and then joins the table with all of his friends and colleagues to wait for the papers to arrive. Around 4.30 in the morning, 
Polly Adler suddenly appears out of the crowd, and she's got a stack of papers in her arm, and she barrels over the table where they're sitting. As he put it, he just booms in that big, booming, deep voice of hers. <laughs> Cuban, you are the biggest fucking hit in town. Desi celebrated the best way he knew how, with an all-night romp at Polly Adler's. Desi Arnaz came to Hollywood the next year, 1940. RKO had bought the film rights to Too Many Girls and cast him to play Manuelito on the big screen. He was 23 years old and in love for the first time with a girl he called Freckles. Aren't you in love with another girl at the time named Freckles? Yeah, Freckles, yeah. Desi didn't identify Freckles in his book, but radio host Lou Gordon got him to reveal her real name, Renee DeMarco. She's a great dancer, wasn't she? And you're really in love with her. Right. Renee DeMarco was one half of a famous ballroom dance team called the Dancing DeMarcos. She was already married to her much older dance partner, Tony, but her heart was with Desi. And Desi felt that Freckles really got him. She understood that when he went out with other women, it wasn't serious. Freckles never nagged, and Desi intended to make her his wife. His publicist, he had a publicist now, even leaked news of their romance to the press. But on his first day on set at RKO, fate showed Desi Arnaz it had other plans. The screen adaptation of Too Many Girls did not include the entire Broadway cast, and it angered Desi when RKO replaced his Puerto Rican co-star, Diosa Costello, with a white American actress and dancer, Ann Miller. Unless we can find a millionaire with $300 cash. The show's main character was written as a wide-eyed ingenue named Consuelo Casey. For the movie version, the role went to a 28-year-old actress from Jamestown, New York, named Lucille Ball. Well, Dad, if you want to know the truth, there was a man. Uh-huh. The first time Desi remembers seeing Lucy, he was sitting with the film's director, George Abbott. Lucy had been filming a movie called Dance Girl Dance on a nearby soundstage. She walked over, still in her costume, a flashy metallic dress and high heels. She was playing a burlesque queen named Bubbles. Bubbles. Hello, madam. I ain't got an ounce of question, Your Honor. Can you dance? Who got into a brawl with another dancer. Lucy had a big black eye, part of her character's makeup. So here I am. Did she really dance? Desi asked George Abbott, who the hell was that woman? George said, that's Lucille Ball. She's playing Consuelo, the innocent college girl. Desi couldn't believe it. He told the story on The Tonight Show in 1976. I said, she's going to be the engineer? Sure, you might. I said, there's no way you can put this girl back to play an engineer, you know. But the second time Desi saw Lucy, just hours later, well, that was different. Desi remembered every detail, even decades later. He remembered what time it was, 5 o'clock in the afternoon. He remembered exactly what he was doing. He and the piano player were rehearsing a song called She Could Shake the Maracas. And he remembered everything about the woman who walked into the room at that moment. She came in with a 
very lovely pair of yellow slacks and a tan sweater and broad hair. She, had, she was a blonde then. And those big, beautiful blue eyes. And I said to the piano player, oh man, that's a hunk of woman, you know. He said, you met her this morning. I said, no, I never saw her before in my life. He said, sure, that's Lucille Ball. That's the one that's going on. I said, that's Lucille Ball? He said, yeah. Said, By this time, she came over. He says, hello, Dizzy. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, Holder is not Dizzy. He says, Daisy? <laughs> I said, no, that's a flower. I said, Desi. D-E-S-I. Oh, all right. I said, are you doing anything tonight? Because if you don't have anything to do tonight, uh, how would you like to learn how to do the rumba? Gustavo Perez has thought a lot about this. What was it about Desi and Lucy that so instantly connected them in that moment? It's kind of why he started writing about Desi. Gustavo is Cuban, also married to an American woman, Marianne. I became interested in the Alu Lucy show to learn how a Cuban man and an American woman make a life together. Marianne told me that when she met me, the only other Cuban she knew was Ricky Ricardo. And then she told me, you're Ricky Ricardo with a PhD. <laughs> Gustavo thinks that with Lucy and Desi, it was a case of opposites attract. She liked the fact that she was different from every woman that he'd met before. She liked the fact that he was different from every man she had met before. And I think sex had a lot to do with it because he could rumba standing up and he could rumba lying down. The chemistry was obvious to their co-stars, too. Van Johnson played a chorus boy in the film. This is from a PBS interview from 1999. Well, you could see the fireworks and the, and the sparks. They complimented each other. And she fell in love with him and his accent and his dark beauty. But we saw it happen. It was just, they just clicked. Did you think it would last? Forever. Forever. On the next episode of The Plot Thickens, Lucy and Desi fight over the phone. You Cuban son of a bitch. Where were you all last night? What are you trying to do? Lay every goddamn one of those chorus girls in too many girls? No wonder they picked you for the show. Then she'd hang up on me. And they fight in person. Well, I have a very quick temper, and uh, I have been known to throw a few things. But they fight hardest to be together in the same town at the same time. I can't tell you how tough it was, but I know it was tough because they weren't together. Angela Carone is our director of podcasts. Story editor and creative consultant is Joanne Ferrion. Audio editing and sound design by Mike Volgaris and his exceptional ears. Script writing by Angela Carone, Yako Friedman, Dale Maharaj, Maya Croth, and Joanne Ferrion. Yako Friedman is our senior producer. Associate production from Josh Lash. Additional editing and sound design by Paul Robert Mounsey and Heather Frankel. Additional script editing by Brian Erstadt and Susan White. James Sheridan is our researcher, fact-checker, and resident Lucy expert. Mixing by Glenn Matulo and Tim Pelletier. Production support from Jordan Bogie, 
Bailey Tyler, Allison Fior, Julie Bitton, Mario Riles, Susanna Zapeta, Liz Winter, and Reed Hall. Web support by Betsy Gooch. Thanks to David Byrne, Wendy Gardner, Taryn Jacobs, Diana Bosch, and the entire TCM marketing team. The excerpts from the audiobook version of Desi Arnaz's memoir were read by Juan Pablo de Pache. Special thanks to Roxandra Guidi for her help on this episode. Thank you to Dotson Raider, whose interview with Lucy is heard throughout this podcast. Thomas Avery of Tune Welders composed our theme music. TCM's general manager is Pola Shagnon. Our executive producer is Charlie Tabish. Check out our website at tcm.com backslash the plot thickens. It has info about each episode and photos from throughout Lucille Ball's life. Again, that's tcm.com backslash the plot thickens. I'm your host, Ben Mankiewicz. Thanks for listening. See you next time.